Tell me that doesn't sound like Stranger Things. Those of you that, all right, so before I get going here, there's a Jeep. You have Virginia plates. I'm going to forgive you for that. Uh, you need to get Texas plates because Texas is better than Virginia. But I, but I am glad this wasn't California plates. But let me tell you what's going on here. Uh, it's WWF, which um, World Wrestling Federation, 2475. You um, are really, really not very smart because you left your car running. I do this all the time, by the way. You left your car running. It's locked in the parking lot. So if you are from Virginia, you have Virginia brake plates, and you're going to admit that you left your car running in the parking lot, would you please go ahead and stand up and make your way out? Wait, are you going? Is that, is that it? Hey. So, she, so she's going, but I want to tell you that I've done this like multiple times. I will come out from lunch like an hour or something lunch, and my, I left my car running. I'm like, what, what is wrong with me? But at uh, any rate, all right, so let me remind you guys, Disciple Now is coming up. There's lots of needs for Disciple Now, so please check into the four-year check-in online. We have multiple, multiple needs from drivers to host homes, so please check into that. And then most of you are aware that we are um, in the midst of our second year of our Relentless Campaign. Our Relentless Campaign is how many times we wanna share the gospel Annually, And so our goal is to get in a decade that we are sharing the gospel a million times annually as a church network. And so this year we set our goal at 500,000. And the reason we set our goal at 500,000 this year is because we knew that there was a lot of work that was going to be done in Ethiopia. And that work hasn't, won't start this week, but we are, have a big portion of it this week. So they're doing, we're doing a gospel festival. They are doing a gospel festival. We have a team that's actually going over there to serve them. And so there's expecting around 25,000 people to be at this gospel festival um, over the multiple days. And so I just want us to be praying. And so I want to first and foremost pray for those that we are sending. I want to pray for the pastors and the missionaries that are over there. And then let's pray over the word together. And so would you join me as I just cover this, uh, this mission and the team that is going today? God, we come to you today. And while we have read the scriptures, uh, it's really hard to pick up some times on exactly what it's saying. And so thank you that you give us moments like this where we can dig into the word of, we can, we can take the scriptures and we can dissect and study and, and see and understand what you are speaking to us as your people. So we praise you for that. I ask God that you would take the overall mission of what's taking place in this church body and you would continue to expand our vision. You would let us dream bigger. You would let us reach further. And Lord, there is a work that has taken place um, in Ethiopia. We praise you for the pastors. We praise you for the missionaries that are over there right now. They're suffering through all sorts of uh, persecution, that are suffering through um, all sorts of things that we don't face today. But Lord, they are being faithful. So we ask God that you would continue to bless them. We ask the Lord specifically for the team that uh, we're sending over, that you would watch over each one of them, that their travels would be safe, but Lord, that their impact would be eternal. And so, God, today, as a church body, we just cover this mission as people come out in droves to hear the gospel, that even now in this moment, in Ethiopia, Lord, you would be preparing hearts to receive your Son as their Savior. Send your spirit in front of everything that's going to take place. And then, Lord, we will surrender and we'll celebrate and we will give you and you alone glory for everything that happens. Now, Lord, I know that there are men and women in this room who need desperately to hear from you. So would you speak to us, please, in the name of Jesus. 
everybody in the house said. Amen, amen, amen. All right, let me catch everybody up in case you haven't been around for a while. Um, so we're in the study in Romans. We are about five weeks in, four or five weeks into the study. We're in chapter three. We just read a large chunk of scripture, which we're going to teach through. Uh, we teach verse by verse. I believe that God speaks to us clearly. And so we want to clearly receive what he has spoken. But the apostle Paul is actually writing a letter to the church in Rome in 57 AD. And that's what we're dissecting is this letter because this letter is actually written and it was written for the purpose of what does it mean to be a Christian? And so I think that's important for us in our day and our time and our daily walks to understand what it means for us to be a follower of Christ. And so as Paul begins to write this out, he's taken us down this journey and the first two chapters, and even into this chapter, it's gonna feel like we've just sort of been circling the wagon. Uh, in fact, oh my gosh, my wife and I were sitting at a four-way stop at a shopping center, four-way stop, two or three cars deep. And, and to set the scene for you, the wind is just blowing like crazy. It's starting to rain. And, and there's a little girl, she's probably, I don't know, four or five, and her mom lets her have. She has this little bitty umbrella that's covering her. And I'm watching this little girl, I'm sitting there going, this, she's going to marry Poppins it right now. I mean, this little girl is about just to take off into never, never land. She's literally doing this. Her mom reaches up, grabs the umbrella. The umbrella just, you know how they pop backwards because the wind is so strong, pops backwards. There's people running, there's dogs, I, there's dogs running around. I don't even know what's happening. And I look up and the car, one car in front of us at a four-way stop, doesn't go right, doesn't go straight, doesn't turn left, just circles in the middle of the four-way stop. I'm like, what is this Yahoo doing? Like, it was just the most chaotic scene. And I feel like the first three chapters it almost feels like this. The Paul is just in this, where he could turn right, he could go straight, he could turn left. It almost feels like we've been just circling. Well, today we're actually going to change directions completely. And so, real clear, he has been very, very clear saying, look, your moral standards are not going to remove sin. He's been very clear to say, the law does not remove sins. He's been incredibly clear to say that works, Rituals do not remove sin. And so now he's going to answer this question that I believe that everyone that is reading this letter in the church in Rome in 57 AD, were like, what is his point? Where is he going? Then what? If it's not the law, if it's not moral standards, if it's not rituals, then what? What is going to make me whole? And this is where we're going to be hanging out today. Really important to catch this. Chapter 3, verse 9, it says, what then? He's saying, what then? He's saying, what then? He's like, moral standards, law, rituals, works. It's not going to take your sin away. So what then? What? What is going to set us free? What does it mean for us to follow Jesus? If none of those things are what it's about, what is it about? And he says then, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. We're not better off because we have standards, because we have the word of God. It actually says they've been entrusted with the word of God in verse 2 of chapter 3. He says, for we have already charged that all, this is a big word, all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. So he's like, I've made it very clear that we are all under sin. That means we've all sinned, and that's what he's pointing to here. And now what he's going to do is he's going to actually recap what we have covered. This is the circling in the four-way stop. But he's going to do it in the way, and, and the way I want to do this is because I like to watch uh, shows, TV shows, and I really like uh, law scenes. And so I, this is a, a scene that you would see from a movie where it's the closing arguments 
in a court of law, and this is an attorney. Paul's coming in as an attorney, and he's coming in with the 14 indictments. Now, I know that Trump has way more indictments than that, but this is 14 indictments that he has that he is charging against you, against me, against the Greeks, against the Jews, against all. Against all. These are the 14 indictments. And so he walks in to the courtroom, and here's what he lays down in front of the jury and the judge. He says, as it is written, like no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands and no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless and no one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. Their venom, their venom, listen, this is, this is not just any kind of venom. This is like, this is under their lips. This is like snake venom. This is like, I, I want to kill other people. I want to destroy other people type of venom. It says in verse 14, their mouths are full of curses and bitterness. You know people that are bitter? It's always someone else, isn't it? Their feet are swift to shed blood and their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known for there is no fear of God before their eyes. 14 indictments that he has covered from A to Z, from chapter one all the way to chapter three. And he's setting this up to make a massive shift. We've been focused on God's wrath. He's now gonna shift us to God's grace. And from chapter three, verse 21, all the way to chapter eight, it's all about God's grace. So the tone's gonna change on Sunday mornings for a few weeks. And that's super exciting, but I want you to hear this and hear this clear because here's the indictments. So what's this mean? Verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, now this word law here is the word for Torah. This is the fullness of the law. This is the fullness of scripture. He's saying, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world should be held accountable to God. Accountable is actually under the judgment of God. He's like, so when you know the fullness of God's word, when we have a, an understanding of the fullness of what his standard is, the fullness of what his plan is, then we are not just accountable, but we are under the judgment of God. Not judgment of people, but we're under the judgment of God. Now, verse 20 is where the shift starts. And now this is where we're gonna start doing work in the scriptures, because that's all by the way of setup. Verse 20, it says, for by works, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Again, this is repeating. The works here is the same concept. I, I expressed this last week. This is rituals. This is just doing the rituals. He's saying, you are not going to be justified. Give me a grace. I'm going to come back to this word here in a few verses, and I'll explain this word justified. But it's like, nobody is justified since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So the law points to the sin. What that means is there is a, an undercurrent. And what, what I would tell you is what Paul has been doing is He's been saying, look, there is a backdrop, which is God's goodness. And in front of that, there is a glaring, obvious people who are filled with sin. The way, the way I would point this out is so uh, a few years back, we did a vacation Bible school and we did it. Um, it was, I don't even know what the title of it was, but we did a bunch of illusions and it was all, it was all around the way of perception and illusions. And I got to be the great Houdani. 
And so I got to do a bunch of illusions. It was so much fun. And so when I was going through stuff and I was practicing, uh, my wife actually bought me a, it was a, it's like a, like a velvet, a velvet board, but it was blue. And there were multiple tricks I couldn't, I say tricks, there were multiple illusions I could not do because it was blue and it was not black. Once I got a black one, it was like game on. Like I would fool all of you. My, my hands are fast, all right? I'm like, who Donnie, all right? And so, but it was black. And so once I had the, back, the right backdrop, I could clearly see what I was doing and no one else could see what I was actually doing. Same thing is true. You go to a jeweler. If you walk into a jewelry store and you're gonna look at diamonds and you walk in, they don't pull it out and lay it down on clear glass. What do they put behind it? Black velvet. And then they put that diamond out and they put it under the sparkling light. And so it is so that that diamond will stand out. And what he's saying is the law is a backdrop. It is a black backdrop so that we can understand the fullness of God's goodness. And what stands out in front of it is actually glaring our sin. And so he's like, look, this is the, ba- the law is the backdrop to our sin. And then here's where it gets really, really good. He says in verse 21, and this is where everything changes. He says, but now, say, but now out loud, say it. But now, you are not near as excited as you should be because this is the change. In the book of Romans, everything changes here, everything. So for the next eight chapters, it is now about the but now. It's not about the wrath of God. It is now going to be about the grace of God. And he says, but now, he says, the righteousness of God has been manifested. That means made known apart from the law. Now, this is crazy talk. I mean, when I say crazy talk, absolutely crazy talk. To every Jew that is listening to the reading of this letter in 57 AD in Rome, they are going, he is great. What is he talking about? There is no righteousness apart from the law. The law is the standard. The law is the marker. And so this would have sounded insane to the people that were listening. Absolute insanity. Because he said, look, you're gonna have to separate this out. The law, the rituals, the works, everything you've thought that makes God happy, you're gonna have to pull that aside because you've missed one key element. And then he says this. He says, although the law and the prophets, they bear witness to it. What is the it? Bear witness to it. Now the law meaning, again, Torah, the prophets, meaning all of the prophets in the Old Testament. I had a bunch of prophecies I was going to throw out to you, but I, we weren't going to have time. The law and the prophets bear witness to it. It's been several years ago, but I went into the hospital and I was being introduced to uh, a baby. I think babies look like aliens. And um, I, know, I know they're so cute to everybody. They're not to me. And so, and I'm not just afraid of them. They just, they just don't, they don't look good. That just don't look good. There's something, I know I look like one with my bald head, but I'm just telling you, I'm just telling you, something about it ain't right. They're little, they got these little hands, like, I, I don't know. At any rate, I said, I said, oh, look at it. And the mom and my wife at the same time said, it's a she, not an it. I'm like, okay. I did not combine the two words together. Now, the next thing you need to know is it goes, it goes here. Uh, okay, keep, don't get excited. Don't get excited. What is the it here, though? What is the it? What is the it here? What is the it here? Because it's not 
not the law. So what is the it? And they want to know. They want an answer. Now, we have to also keep in mind that this is how Paul set up the entire discussion. He set up the whole discussion with this it. Okay, come backwards with me. Go to Romans 1, 16 and 17, where he's proclaiming, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jews first and also the Greek. He says, for in it, do you see the it? Here it is. There it is again. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. So it is revealed in faith and through faith. And then he says, the righteous shall live by, oh, the righteous shall live by faith. They shall live by faith. Now, the it is not a what, it is not an it, it is a who, and it is not a she, it is a he. And everything that is being pointed to here is he's saying everything is shifting. It is no longer going to be the standard from the law. In fact, I'll tell you why the law was the standard here in a minute. Paul addresses this. We're not going to leave that stone unturned, but he's saying, look, here's what you need to have in your heart, and what you need to understand. It is vital. It is vital that you understand that the it is actually a he or a who. Next verse, verse 22 of chapter 3, it says, for the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. So this is not the it, this is the who. And so he's like, the standard has changed from law to who, and it is faith, not just faith, it is Jesus. So the it is not law, the it is not faith, the it is faith in Jesus. Is that clear? Good roadmap for you? The it is not law, the it is not faith, because you can have faith in all kinds of crazy stuff. The it is faith in Christ, and that's what he's pointing to, and to all who believe, and he says there is no distinction. So if you look at this, the righteousness of God, it's not about righteousness. Nope, nope, nope. It's not just about faith. It's not just about righteousness. It's not just about faith. It is about Jesus. And as Paul is making this transition, and as he's making this statement, in verse 23, he goes on, he says, hey, look, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So everybody sinned. Everybody has sinned. So no one has been able to keep the law. We've all fallen short of the law. No one has the moral standards, can live up to the moral standards that have been designed. They just, no one can do it. It's not going to happen. And you're going to get tired of the rituals, and they're going to be meaningless to you. He's like, so these, this is not God's design. This is not God's plan for you. Something new had came. Remember he said in verse 1, but now a righteousness apart from the law has been made known. What has been made known, what Paul is addressing here is Jesus has been made known. And this is where he's going to go with this. He says in verse 24, since we've all sinned, since it's not righteousness, since it's not works, since it's not law, it's about Jesus. What does that mean? Explain this to us. And in verse 24, so we've all sinned and fallen short of his, of his glory. But we've been justified, verse 24, justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Those are my two words I want to focus on here. So the first one I want to hit is justified. So justified is, um, I think most people in this room know what justified means, but let me make sure that you understand this in the context because Paul is literally making a declaration here. And so this idea of justified, so first of all, the word justified is used 30 times in the scriptures, in the New Testament. It's used 15 times in the book of Romans alone. And the idea of justified, it is a, it is a uh, court, it is a, it's a, it's a law term. 
and it is not just any sort of law term, it's a court of law term. And so it's a judicial term. And this judicial term is justified means you are declared right. Not just declared right, but declared right. And it's so right, it says if you've never done anything wrong or there was never an accusation. And so it is a complete wiping clean. And so in the church world, the way we describe justified is we say, it is just as if I'd never sinned. Did you pick up on it? Okay. I thought you guys would be like, oh, nope. I have a hint. Redemption, another word that is sort of a church word, but it's really not. This is actually a word that was, uh, it was a slave market word. And in the slave market, what it would mean is, so, you know, if you go to an auction and there's an auctioneer and he's blah, 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 and you go, oh, it's going, well, it's going twice, you know that guy? So in, in the auction term, so when the auction for the slave market was taking place, it, instead of screaming bingo or chicken foot or raising a number, it would be, literally the word would be redeemed, redeemed. And the reason that this word was used is because it's saying this slave now has value. Did not have value, now has value. Now, what I find fascinating about this idea of, of value is this is exactly how the scriptures are going to describe us in sin versus us in Christ. God's value, God values us so much that he sent, even in our sin, he sent his son to the cross because he valued us, because he knew his plan of redemption. He knew that we were gonna be slaves to sin and he was gonna set us free. And he used the word redemption here strategically, strategically. And then in verse 25, he keeps going, same theme, keeps going. He says, whom God put forward as a propitiation. Now this propitiation is a word that, um, yeah, we don't use it very often, do we? Really, let me, let me read the whole verse and then I'm gonna come back to the word. By his blood, to be received by, by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, that's his goodness, because of his divine forbearance, means his long suffering had passed over former sins. So what is this? What is this actually point? What was pa passed over the former sins? What is it? What's happening here? This is such a big word and it's, it's really hard to understand because this was a hard word to actually translate. And so um, four times it's translated from the Greek into English in the New Testament. And, and we, the real meaning of this would be, root meaning of this would be appeasement. So it would be appeasement. So it's, it's appeasing. But there's something bigger to this. It goes a little bit deeper. Because if we were to take this same word in Greek, propitiation, which is hilasterion, if we took hilasterion, that Greek word, and we were to take it back and look at the totality of the scripture from Genesis to Revelation, and we were to use the Septuagint. Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. So it's instead of Hebrew, it's translated from Hebrew into Greek. So if we did that, we're going to find hilasterion staring us in the face in the most unusual spot. Exodus chapter 25. Verse 22, God is proclaiming to the people, he's setting up the Ark of the Covenant, he's setting up the, the meeting spot where he's gonna meet with them. And he says this to, his, to the people, he says, there I will meet with you. This is God speaking, there I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, here we go. This word mercy seat right here, by the way, translated from Hebrew into Greek is the word hilasterion, the same word as propitiation. Now this becomes incredibly fascinating, okay? So watch this. He says, from between the two cherubims, 
that are on the Ark of the Testimony. Now, the Ark of the Testimony, so the mercy seat was set up. There's two angels, one at the head and one at the feet. And then there was a lid, and inside that lid is where the Ark of the Covenant was stored, which is where Aaron's budding staff was, the Ten Commandments, and then manna from heaven. And so that was in the mercy seat. And God is saying, I will meet with you. And the only place I will meet with you is Helasterion, at the mercy seat. And so if you want to meet with me, if you want to encounter me, you must come to the mercy seat. Now this is in the Old Testament. This is unbelievable to me. This is crazy. Watch this, watch this. I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. You come to me at the mercy seat, Helasterion, and I will meet with you. And there I will reveal what I desire from you. Now I wanna go backwards and I wanna reread this verse. Actually, let me do one more thing, just to make this make sense to you, even a little, bit, a little clearer picture, because the Bible is very full. In John chapter 20, verse 12, there's a scene, it's after the resurrection of Jesus. So he's already been tried, he's already been crucified, he was in place in a borrowed tomb. And in that borrowed tomb, Unbelievable. Mary Magdalene shows up. She's freaking out because he's not there. Goes against Peter and John. They run real fast down there. Well, Mary Magdalene actually looks down into the tomb. And when she looks into the tomb, the Bible says that she sees two angels sitting on the seat. One at the head of where Jesus would have been laying, but he had risen, he's gone. And one at the feet. And they are sitting on this. Now, if you took a picture, snapshot, that snapshot would look very similar to the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat from the Old Testament, where there was a cherubim on each side, one on the head and one of the feet of the seat. And then this is where, where the blood would be spilled on the mercy seat is where God would meet with them. Mary Magdalene, when she looked in, the angel on the head, the angel on the feet, and it says there in the middle where Jesus was not, I will meet with you, Helasterion. Helasterion. So when we come backwards, let me have verse... Uh, 325 again, when God put forth as a propitiation, as a helasterion by his blood to be received by faith. This means I have given a mercy seat. I have given a savior that's going to come through faith. And then he says with clarity, this was to show God's righteousness, his goodness, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. He's saying, look, if you understand helasterion, the mercy seat, who Christ Jesus is, you'll understand that the law did not remove sin. It covered you, it made you, it gave you the right to have a little bit of communication and follow my decrees, but it did not remove your sins. The sins, the divine forbearance of the sins formally happened. He's saying, this is imperative that you understand that the law never was designed to remove sin. The law was a caste. The law was people are broken in order for them just to be held together. I need to put a cast on them to hold them together. But God's plan was all the way from Exodus, all the way to John chapter 20, all the way to the church in Rome in 57 AD, all the way to today. It is not the law that removes sin. It is not moral standards that remove sin. It is not rituals that remove sin. It is Christ Jesus. It is Helasterion, the mercy seat, the blood of Jesus. Propitiation. Verse 26, he goes on and he says, I will meet you there. He says, now, it was to show his righteousness 
at, a present, at the present time. This is why Jesus died, when he had to die, how he died, and all the picture. Showing his righteousness in the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, in the Old Testament, you're going to get there next week. Next week we will get there, and next week we'll deal with faith in the Old Testament, namely Abraham, and Paul's going to address that in chapter 4. But right now, he's pointing towards Jesus for a reason. Verse 27, that what becomes of our boasting, it is excluded. By what kind of law? By the law of works? Like, like are we boasting because we think the law, we think our works, our rituals that match up with this law, you think that's going to remove our sin? He's like, no, absolutely not. No, but it's the law of what? Say it out loud. This is the U-turn. This is the circling. It is the law of faith. And this law of faith is going to be the discussion for the next chapter and a half that we are going to dig into to understand that he was trying to shift the thinking and the minds of the individuals, primarily the Jews, to understand that, look, it is not about your rituals. There is something deeper, and it is your faith, and it is the law of faith. Now, not only is it just showing law of faith, watch this verse, next verse. For we hold that the one who is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So for we hold, he's saying, I, I'm telling you right now that you are justified. That means you are declared right to the point that you had never had wrong. You are covered, your sin, your past, present, and future sin, covered apart from works of the law, apart from them. This is still where the Jews are like, what is he talking about? We can't, we have to have the law. He said, no, no, I'm telling you right now, I'm holding on to this, I'm sharing this with you. He says in verse 29, or is God just the God of the Jews only? Do you think you're it? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Verse 30, he says, and he's quoting this, and he says, since God is one. This is Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. If you know it, say it. The Lord is one. It's one. He is putting the Shema in the face of the Jews who are listening to this, who are just, they are blown away with the concept and the idea that you're telling me that the law doesn't make me whole. You're telling me that my faith makes me whole. He's like, listen to me carefully. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. And he's going to tell them in the Shema, you're going to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, with all of your might. He's like, there is something different than just holding on to the checklist of boxes that you need to be doing. The rituals are not going to fix you. They're not going to make you right. So I want to piece it together before I read the last verse. If I were to tether together verse 25, 26, and then really 27 through 30, it would be this. It is his will. Let me read the next verse. Um, verse 30. No, give me 30 again. Give me 30 again. Do we not know? Or oops, There we go. Since God is one, he will justify. This means he's going to declare you right by faith. He's going to declare you. That word, remember, that word is justified, it's declared right. So I'm going to declare you right by faith. I'm going to declare those who are, you not even Jews, right by faith. I'm going to declare you right by faith. I said, nothing's ever been wrong. And then in verse 31, he says, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? He's like, don't get confused. 
I'm not telling you that now this faith is, faith is out the window, law is in, or law is out, and faith is in. He's like, I want you to understand this. By no means, I'm not saying we overthrow the law. I don't want to lose you here, so pay attention to what I say next. On the contrary, we uphold the law. What law did he present to them? It's sometimes we just read it and we miss it. What law did he present to them? Can you go back to verse 27 for me? See, sometimes when we read the scriptures, we just we kind of read through something, we miss it, right? We, so I'm, I'm making you circle back here. The law of faith. They want law of rituals. He's like, no, 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 we're not gonna throw that out. It's the law. There is law, and it is, go back to verse 31 for me now. The law that he has just been expressing. We uphold the law. What law is he upholding here? What law do we uphold? The law of what? Faith. Faith. And so what Paul is trying to get an entire group of people to understand in 57 AD is the same thing that I try to get people to understand today. And that is that the law of your works, your rituals, your actions, what you think is right, what you think is wrong, your moral standards, you're gonna have to push all of that aside because none of it matters unless your faith Jesus. If you have not put your faith in Christ, everything else is going to be burned up, everything. And so it's still an ongoing battle for us today to trust and believe that our faith. And so why is it that we struggle developing our faith? Because we want to deal with our actions, our works, our rituals. We spend a ton of energy on how do we please the people around us and how do we please God by doing the right things. When Paul is saying, no, I need you to understand your faith, your faith, your actions will absolutely follow your faith. What you believe is what you will live. And what Paul is saying, and what I want to say to you, is what you believe will dictate your actions. And so if I were to ask you today, do you believe that Jesus is Lord? And you were to say, yes, I would say, do you believe that he's Lord of your life? And you said, yes, I would say, does your life look like he is Lord? Because see, what we believe dictates our actions. And this is the story that Paul is going to begin to tell and push these people down. And it's the one I want us to reflect on all week. God, I praise you for your grace. I thank you for your mercy. I know that in this room today, it is not just me. I'm not alone in this room when I try to think about the things that I'm supposed to do that are right, that are pleasing, to honor you. And yet I neglect my faith. I think we are guilty of this, Lord. And so what I pray is that you would let us be a body of people who understand that you designed us to be men and women of faith. You have di you've directed us to be men and women of faith. And so for us, that means what we believe in. So Lord, let us develop what we believe not in order to argue, not in order that we could win something, but develop what we believe in order that our life and our steps, they would please you. I praise you that in this room today, you have shared through your scriptures that it is faith and faith alone that redeems us. With your heads bowed, your eyes closed. I know some of you have been baptized as kids. I know some of you have been had taken the Lord's Supper. Some of you have sang louder than anyone in the room, but I'm asking you today as your friend,
I'm asking you, have you put your faith in Christ Jesus? Have you had that moment where you have faithed him and you've begun to walk after him and your life has been transformed? If you haven't, I wanna invite you in this moment to pray to God and I want you just to pray these words. God, today I know that I have struggled in what I believe. I've struggled in what I have faith. And so today, Lord, I am putting my faith, I'm proclaiming my belief in you. And God, through that prayer, I'm asking you, Lord, to redeem my soul. I'm asking you, Lord, to guide and lead my life. You have proclaimed in your word that the only place you will meet me is at the Helasterion, at the mercy seat, at the foot of the cross in Christ Jesus. And then Jesus came along and he said, I'm the way, the truth, and life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. So today, in this room, God, I am faithing that. And so it is the name of Jesus that I am proclaiming, and it is the calling of Jesus that I am following. I give my life to you. I give everything I am to you. Thank you for being a good and gracious God. And Lord, over this body, those who prayed that prayer, I pray that you would kickstart their walk with you for the rest of this congregation. Those who have been walking with you for years, inspire our hearts and stir us in deep faith to follow you because you are so, so worthy. Thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, everybody in the house said. Amen. If